Now take your copy of God's Word or turn it on and go to Romans chapter 14. If you, you don't have one, you can even take out your device and just in the search bar on your browser, you can just type in Romans 14 and I promise it, it will take you there. But we're going to continue our series through this letter to the church at Rome, the book of Romans we call it, by the Apostle Paul. The series is called How to Change the World. And in today's message, I really just want to focus on this theme. We belong to the Lord. One of the reasons we have difficulty changing the world as those who represent Christ is because we get caught up on the differences and the challenges that we have between ourselves. I can remember understanding this as a child. I would hear these words, well, they're, they're leaving our church, or they're going to another church now. You see, I grew up in a pastor's home in a small town, and I learned at a, at a young age that not everybody who loves Jesus always gets along with one another. I remember the weird feelings in that town when then we would see those people at a restaurant or at a grocery store. It, it would feel like something wasn't right, and in fact, it wasn't. Something was broken. Relationships were broken. Things were not the same as they had been. So candidly, as an outflow of this reality, as I was growing up, there's one thing I knew that I did not want to do. I, I did not want to be a pastor. I, I did not want to go through some of those challenges that I had observed. My parents were godly, and my brother and I loved church. They didn't come home and talk about the church badly, or we, we didn't know about all those difficulties, but I saw enough particularly as I got a little older. So when I was 12 years old, I, I believe at a, a camp in the summer, God invoked into my life his call to serve him in ministry. But by the time I'd made that three-hour journey from the mountains of South Carolina back to the sand hills, I had talked myself out of that because I knew that surely there must be other ways to, to, to follow after God. I can remember one occasion specifically just walking in the backyard of our home with my dad and just, just talking about some of the challenges that he was facing. At that point, after more than 20 years in the same church, I, I didn't want that. I didn't want the hurt of experiencing broken relationships. But eventually I answered that call because the reality is when, when, call, when God is calling you to do something... You're either going to live miserably in disobedience or you're going to get right with him and answer. Those are the only alternatives. And so I answered that call and began to serve God. And one of the first places was a part-time youth minister position. And I'll never forget I'd done something that some parents didn't like. Imagine that. And so they were mad at me. And I was calling my dad for solace and comfort. After all, he was my my father, but he was also my mentor and my pastor. And so I'd explain the situation and I, I waited on the other side of the line for him to tell me how I was right and how things could be better. And I, I simply heard these words, son, you need to get thicker skin or get out of the ministry. It wasn't what I was expecting. Um, and so I said, hey, is mom home? <laughs> you, you know, the reality is he was trying to tell me Sometimes that is just part of it, but I would grow as a young pastor, and, and I would lead churches and ministries of my own, and I would see people disagree and 
regularly over significant theological issues, but I'd watch them leave the church, and I would remember feeling those same feelings that I felt as a child. I, I remember here in Florida, I was with a small group of pastors who gathered with Dr. Adrian Rogers at his last meeting with other pastors before he went to heaven. And somebody asked him, in all your years of ministry, this great pastor, worldwide television ministry, huge church he led, what, what's the toughest thing that you faced in ministry? And, and he didn't hesitate. He said, hands down, the toughest thing I ever faced is that I felt like I invested in people's lives. And I would, maybe I was there when their children were born or when their kids got married or when their parents died. I, I walked them through the, the mountaintops and the valleys and then, and then something would happen. They would get a disagreement over a, a philosophy, over a decision I made, uh, over something in the church, and, and they would leave mad. And, and then he, he continued, he said, and, and all too often they would just take other people with them. Even this week as we mourned the death of a, a great preacher, Dr. Charles Stanley, I can remember as a young pastor hearing him talk to pastors about ministry and hearing him tell the story that when he went to First Baptist Church of Atlanta, he had not been there long when, when I think on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night, one of the deacons came on stage and literally punched him in the face. He lasted for 50 years after that as pastor of the church. But I don't think I have to tell you this. Because you've lived life. You, a lot of you have been members of churches, not just this church. You, you recognize that we're different, and you go through this journey of faith and as a follower of Christ, and you realize there are things you disagree with, and you disagree even with others who share your faith. And some of them seem like a big deal, and others seem like marginal issues, and, and you you go forward, but sometimes these things get in the way and they present a problem. And so we've got this question, how do I live in community, in a family of faith with these people with whom I disagree, and yet not lose my testimony for Christ by becoming disagreeable? How do I handle the differences of my opinion or, or preference or theology with other Christians? How do we live in unity with other followers of Jesus in midst of great diversity, And, and that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 14. Let me give you a quick review. Romans 1 through 11, those first 11 chapters are dealing with the gospel, our salvation, specifically what we've called soteriology. What does it look like to be saved? Why do we even use that term saved? What, is, what does it mean that we're saved by grace alone, through, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And then in chapter 12, there's a shift, and Paul moves from a description of the gospel, what the gospel is, to showing us a picture of the gospel, what the gospel does. How do we live out our salvation for the glory of God? So more from theology to what we would call doxology. Doxology just means the praise of God. And so what he's saying is, how does it look like when those of us who are followers of Jesus live our lives for the praise of God? So we move from the convictions that we have to the conduct that we express, from the beliefs that we possess to the behavior that we live out, from the doctrines that we hold dear to the duties in our faith. And then here in chapter 14 in, in this diverse church in Rome, he has a family discussion. 
And, and you do understand it would have been a very diverse church because all roads lead to Rome. It was a, maybe the most diverse city in the known world. So, so you would have had former Jewish, maybe rabbis like Paul, scholars who, who knew the Old Testament word for word. A lot of them memorized the, the first five books that we have in our Bible. And then you'd have brand new Christians who had followed Christ. They were Gentiles, and they converted, and, and they were just enjoying the freedom that they had in Christ. And, and they, they would come together, but they didn't always get along. So Paul had a family meeting, and, and I would just pause and say, that's, that's kind of what we're doing here today. This message, as much as any I've ever preached, is geared toward those who are part of the family of God. You're already followers of Christ. You understand this thing at least somewhat. Now, I've got good news. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, which I'm confident someone is, you're going to see that, that you shouldn't let the way we sometimes behave keep you from running after Jesus. And I'm going to give you a chance to, to even do that before we end our time together. You're going to see, as followers of Christ, how we navigate those differences. And you're going to see that because in many ways, if you were to sum up this whole chapter, chapter 14 of Romans, you could sum it up in that phrase that I've already told you. We belong to the Lord. Let's say that together. We belong to the Lord. But I also want to fast forward and just set the tone because you've got to ask, why does this even matter? You know, don't you ever wonder after you began a relationship with Christ, why didn't God just zap me on to heaven? I mean, why didn't I just get to enjoy the pearly gates and the golden streets immediately? Why do I have to live through this life where it seems like I'm going to fail, I'm going to fall back, I'm going to fight? Why can't I just enjoy my faith in a better way? In Romans 15 and verses 5 and 6, it tells us why. May the God who gives us endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude and mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that when Christ's followers learn to display unity, even in our diversity, it always brings glory to God. And that's what God wants from you, from your life. He wants glory. He wants praise. He wants honor from you in your life. He doesn't expect you to be super Christian or the most knowledgeable theologian, but he does want your attitudes and your actions in life to give him praise, to give him glory. And this passage talks about how to do that. And, and so this is really, really important. So before we begin to climb through it, I, I want to pray one more time. Because I'm, I'm thinking, man, we're in at least three categories here. So let me just walk through those so, so you know how I've been praying for you and how I'll continue to do so. Some of you, man, as you hear this, you're going to realize I've got divisions and, and, and conflicts relationally, maybe in a past church or maybe just with other people, that I've not handled the way God wants me to handle them. And my prayer is that through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not the words of the preacher, but through God's presence, that you might recognize that there's some things that need to be adjusted. There's others of you, um, maybe that you're here, and, and you're, you're struggling with things even in this church, and, and you're wondering, how do I navigate this? I, I don't agree with that, or with, with these decisions, or how this is done, and 
And, and so you wonder, how do I do that? Is it possible to, to honor Jesus and love people and get this right? And, and yet there's others of you, the third category, that you don't have that relationship with God. And, and the truth is, one of the things that has held you back is you've watched people like me, like us, most of us. Because we don't always get this right. And, and sometimes we're an embarrassment to the cause of Christ. And, and so people like you who may be seeking and searching and, and wondering, is this real? You've not yet taken that step. And, and my prayer for you today is that you'd see that Jesus is so real that he's worth running after. And that his church, though an imperfect hospital for sinners has a place for you. So I want to pray to that end. Eternal Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you, meet us here. Just moving out everything that so easily distracts and entangles us in our mind and our heart and help us to hear from you. Help our ears and our heart and our mind to be open, Lord. Bring about change and start with me, the speaker. Let the words I say and my thoughts be pleasing to you, Lord. Teaching us. Giving us everything we need. Making us more like you. And Lord, I pray that the result of this time together would be unity in your body and in your church with a capital C. And Lord, I, I pray that you would spark something in, in Mission Hill, in this church, that, that spreads among our friends and family who may be in other places of worship. But Lord, hear our heart that we just want to get this right. And we do that not for simply our good, but for your glory. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is the word of God from Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and, and they'll stand or fall, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You, then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we'll all stand before God's judgment seat. It's written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God, and then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. 
I, I want to remind you where I said I want to land the plane in a few minutes. It's, it's the big idea. Here it is. When, when Christ's followers learn to display unity, even in our diversity, it brings glory to God. Christ follower, don't you want your life to bring glory to God? Let me, let me give you the context of this passage. What was going on? Well, there's division in the church. And that's really important that you understand that everything I'm talking about really is talking about in the church. This is not talking about pointing fingers at what those are doing out there in the world. This is the church internally saying, we've got some challenges. I love that the Bible is not, it it doesn't sugarcoat either the people in scriptures or the churches that are referenced. Isn't it amazing that not long after the resurrection of of Jesus, the early church had problems. They were full of sinful people, like you and me. By the way, if you're looking for a perfect church, whatever you do, if you think you found one, don't join it, because you'll mess it up. You're a sinner like me. I mean, we, we are the problem. Not only was there division in the church, but according to Paul, there was dif- division over disputable matters, issues that were not clearly addressed in Scripture. Issues that maybe God had not commanded them to do or or commanded them not to do. There were no proclamation of right or wrong. And so all these diverse people would come together and and they found themselves squabbling, quarreling over these issues that were not that important. In fact, they were focused on two main issues, diets and dates. First of all, their diets. Did you catch it? He said, some of you, you, you feel like it's okay to eat meat. Others of you are vegetarians. You're, you're like, no, 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 can't do that. No bacon for us. And what does he say? He says, eh, you know, if you like eating bacon, go to IHOP. Go for it. You like steak? Go to Golden Corral. But if you don't like it, that's okay. Have your salad bar. But, but don't get in each other's face about this. He was recognizing there were good people on both sides of this argument. Some of them were making their decisions based on what they had convictions about in their faith. But rather than that being a personal conviction that they had, they had begun to impose it on somebody else. And it had created conflict in the church. The, the other issue were these special days. Now, you know what had happened? The Jewish people had always gathered for worship when? On the Sabbath. When was the Sabbath? Sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And now all these people that would eventually be called Christians, these little Christ, they begin to say, let's gather on the first day of the week. Why? Because we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. So let's gather on the first day of the the week. It it became Sunday and, and let's worship. And then it became a conflict. In fact, There were all these feasts in the Jewish law, and so they decided to squabble over that. Should we keep doing this, or should we stop doing this? Is it bad if we do it? Is it bad if we don't do it? And all of these things began to just rise up in the church. And what Paul was trying to do in this passage of Scripture is give a simple concept. Don't elevate your principles over God's precepts. Boy, I think that's something true in our lives today. We have to be careful about taking these things that we think are important to us and and putting them above God's Word in our lives. Think about that in our context, just our church, Mission Hill. We're not a small church. 
Our church, when we gather, we, we have different people from all over. Just today, we'll have four different worship services on three different campuses. When we come together, there'll be people from at least 65 nations of origin. And you know what everybody has? An opinion, a background, a culture. And there are a lot of things that would be disputable issues that we could talk about. Let me see if I can explain this to you. When I, when I was growing up in church, um, man, in our church, ladies, it was not considered okay for you to wear pants to church. In fact, I, I feel like I was a, an older person, maybe out of the home, when I, I saw my mom begin to wear pants. And so in the last service, I, I said, hey, and yet... When you see her in the next service, she'll be wearing pants. And just a minute ago, one of our guys ran to me and he said, Hey, just FYI, your mom wore a dress today. <laughs> but, but if we're not careful, we could even elevate things like, What you dress? How silly does that sound? But, but, but what you wear to church as something that's right or wrong. And, and then there's things like what we sing in church, like our, our worship styles. When I grew up, um, man, the, the worship person... The music minister, we called him, would say, shall we stand as we sing hymn 342? And we would all take out that red Baptist hymnal that was in the seat back in front of us, and we would open that hymn, and we would sing verses 1, 2, and 4, no more, no less, and then we would be seated. We wouldn't sing things over and over and over again. So if you're not careful... When you grew up like I did, you begin to think, hey, this is the way you do music in church. And so if we're not doing it that way, it must be bad. But then I became a parent, and I realized there's all kinds of things like this. So when we started having children, a book series came out. And I was like, should we get these books and read them to our kids? And, and then I would hear people say about Harry Potter Oh, no, don't do that. You're introducing witchcraft. You're, this is about demons. Don't take your kids down that path. And then I began to realize there were other things that, man, in Baptist churches, we were told we can't do. And then I tried to do it and realized they're right. I can't do it. Like, we're not supposed to dance because we can't dance. <laughs> and so we begin to raise these issues up and, and make them issues against uh, about which we can't disagree. And then it begins to get a little more serious. As we navigated raising our children, not long into that journey, we realized that some people were really, really, really passionate about homeschooling. Well, pastor, if you just want to send your kids to hell by letting them go to those other schools, that's fine. But we're taking control here in our household. And then there were other people that were just as passionate about public schools. I mean, they were saying, well, if you want to just abandon the mission field, that's okay. Let them all go to hell. But we're going to put our kids out there and let them make a difference, be the salt and the light. Then there's the people in the middle that went to Christian school and just everybody hated them, both sides. <laughs> and in this church, in every church I've pastored, I've watched people walk out the doors because of differences on these kinds of issues. And then, Lord, how mercy, don't dare mention politics. 
Whew, help me, Rhonda. I, I remember a day a couple years ago, I looked back over here, there was an elderly man sitting, and he was so polite, he had taken his ball cap and put it in his lap because he was inside the building. But I could see from here, it was a red Make America Great Again hat. And I looked over here, and on the second row was a young man, African-American. And in his mask that he was wearing, on the front of it, it said, BLM, Black Lives Matter. I remember thinking while I was preaching, in the name of Jesus, if you just help me get out of here, Lord, I'll do everything I can. I don't, how do we survive? And then there are theological issues. There's the soteriological issue. What exactly does it look like how a person's saved? I mean, does, does God elect and choose everything? Does he send some people to hell? Or does everybody have a right? Can anybody choose him that wants to? And in this church and every church I've pastored, I've, I mean, just think about how this sounds. I've had people leave a church because they disagree on exactly how God chooses to enact salvation. And then there's ecclesiology. How should the church be structured? Do you have pastors or elders or deacons? Do you vote on everything or vote on nothing? I mean, who makes the decisions around here? Ecclesiology. And then liturgy. I think we should say the creeds. Or we don't need to read enough scripture out loud. Or y'all pray too much. How the service looks. You know, it's interesting. Someone said, in essentials we have unity, in non-essentials we have liberty, in all things we have charity. That's the way it should be. But even on that quote, you know why I said someone said that? Because if you go on the internet, you'll find a bunch of Christians arguing about who actually said that. We can't even agree on a statement about agreement and charity and grace. Here's what I know. In the church... When minor things take the place of major things, the church experiences mission failure. And as I look around our community, as I look around Tampa, I've earned the right to say this now. I've lived here 12 years. We've got more churches in Tampa than we had 30 years ago. There are more people in Tampa than there were 30 years ago. But there are less people in church in Tampa than there were 30 years ago. We're experiencing mission failure. And I think it's because some of us kind of need to do the, the neck up, the, the check up from the neck up and make sure we've got our heart and mind right about the majors in our faith. You know, after SpaceX launched that mega rocket this week, I, was, I heard about what happened and I instantly began to look at the response of Elon Musk. And it was confusing because he was saying it was a success, but I was looking at the picture and I'm seeing this big old rocket exploded in the air. Seems like a failure to me. And I think sometimes if we're happy, if our little huddle is happy, we think, man, we've got success. We're comfortable. Things are going good. But when the rest of the world looks within our gatherings, man, it looks like mission failure. So Paul tells us how to manage these things. I'm going to first give you three words, then I'm going to share a couple other scriptures with you and just give you some practical principle. But the three words are where we find our beginning. The first word is acceptance. Paul says, accept the one whose faith 
is weak. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting because the weak person here, it's not what you think. When we hear about weak people and you're saying, hey, be careful because you don't want to cause the weak to stumble. The weak person is not the brand new immature Christian. The weak person he's describing is the legalist. It's the one who's got all the rules. It's the vegetarians. It's the ones who weren't eating meat. And he was saying, you've got to learn to accept them. Your taste, your customs, your culture do not equal spiritual maturity. Can I say that again? Because it's important. Your taste and, and your customs and your culture, they do not equal spiritual maturity. They may not be bad, but they don't make you inherently better. So let's go back to the illustration I gave. I grew up in a church where the preacher, my dad, he wore a suit and tie as long as I ever remember him preaching. And, um, you know, we sang from a hymnal. So it would be easy for me to say, that's the way to do it. And I wish these new people that have all these newfangled ideas and are new in their faith, I wish they didn't try to expose me to all these different ways. But just because that's my tradition or my custom doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it bad either. But it doesn't make it better. Paul was saying we've got to learn to accept those who differ with us on these issues that are not the majors, these secondary issues of our faith. And regardless of where you are on secondary issues, regardless of your opinions or your preferences, when, when secondary issues have become primary issues, you have a problem of pride and self-justification. When we judge others about how they do anything, the problem is back with us in its self-righteousness. Why? Because remember who we're talking to, Christ followers. And the only way a Christ follower can look down their sinful nose at another person is to take our eyes off the cross where Jesus died for our sin. So let me help you structure these things because we're having a family meeting. I think this will help our church, but anyone who hears these words may be encouraged. Theologian Michael Bird structures issues this way. He says, first of all, there are matters essential for our salvation. We sang some of those earlier when we sang that song, I believe. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. There are things that are essential for salvation. We just celebrated Easter, the fact that Jesus literally died on the cross and he literally rose from the grave. If you take that away, if you just said that's fiction or that's fable, then the meaning of our salvation according to Scripture begins to fall apart. So there are things we say, hey, you have to believe this if you're going to call yourself part of the Christian faith. But everything's not in that category. There are matters that are important to the faith and the church, but they're not essential to salvation. So does the Bible talk about the role of men and women in a home and in society and even in the church? Yes. Should I try to understand those things? Of course. Is that essential to my salvation? Absolutely not. Does the Bible talk about spiritual gifting and what some would call charismatic worship practices? Absolutely. A lot of detail about that. Should I try to understand it? Yes. Are those matters essential to salvation? No. Then there's a the third category. Matters of indifference. <laughs> They're debatable and non-essential issues. Whether or not you wear a tie to worship, I'm just telling you, it's inconsequential. Whether or not you like this style of music or that style of music, it matters to you, but that's not a biblical, consequential issue. Remember, we're not talking about accepting sin. We're accepting those who agree with us on disputable matters. 
So this week I was talking with another pastor, and he was sharing an experience of a conversation he had with someone that he had gotten to know in this area. And, and they had attended a church, but they felt led to leave that church. And this pastor said to me, the church that they left practices shunning. And I had not heard that, so I said, what do you, what do you mean by that? They practice shunning. They said, well, when you leave their church, they tell their members, you no longer can be friends with them. You no longer can talk to them. You no longer need to have anything to do with them. So he said, these people, when they would go in public, if they saw people from their old church, they would literally go down a different aisle to avoid them. Now, I told you I've never heard it described that way, but I've experienced that at Publix too. <laughs> and it's not okay, is it? Let me explain something to you. If God's not made something a barrier to our relationship and communion with Him, why should it become a barrier to our relationship and communion with other people? Be careful. Don't let your convictions diminish your compassion. Last week I told you that often the main thing is the plain thing. And the plain thing in Scripture, it's, it's very clear. It's love. L-O-V-E. And when your compassion is diminished because of your conviction about anything, you're not living life the way Jesus would have you live. Acceptance. Second thing is acknowledgement. We have to acknowledge we belong to the Lord. That's why I said that's what it's all about. We belong to the Lord. Everything about us belongs to Him. That's why conversations about giving are so silly. When, when people get frustrated because a pastor talks about giving, you know what? The Bible says if I'm following Scripture, everything I have is from the Lord. We don't pass a physical offering plate or bucket anymore. But if we did, if we want to be biblical from Romans 14, we'd put all of us in it. We'd just step in the plate or the bucket because we belong to the Lord. And so what that means in this conversation is that everything I do should go through that filter. My freedoms that I have in Christ have to be controlled by the understanding that I first belong to Christ. Does this honor him? And then secondly, I belong to others. So are my actions hurtful to other people? Quick biblical principle. This means it's more about attitude often than action. And the biblical illustration of that, you, all you have to do is look at Cain and Abel in the Bible. I remember reading that story as a child and thinking, this isn't right. Um, if, you, if you don't remember that, these were Adam and Eve's sons, and they were out working, and Abel brought a gift to the Lord from the first fruit of, of, of his flock and gave it to the Lord. Um, Cain brought a gift from the Lord um, from his harvest, but it wasn't from the first fruits. It was from leftovers. And, and you see in this crazy story that God seems to play favorites. And I remember as a child saying, I don't understand that, Lord. That seems kind of harsh. They're both bringing a gift. And that's when you see that sometimes it's not the matter of the action, it's the matter of the attitude. It's the heart of the issue. Because one, one understood we belong to the Lord and, and gave their best to God. The other just said, we're, we're going to give of our leftovers. And God says that's never okay. Acknowledgement. 
we belong to the Lord. But the last word is accountability. And this is important because this will lead into the rest of our discussion. We need to understand that we're all going to give an account for how we live, how we serve the Lord. And so I've told you several times, this is primarily geared toward those of us who are followers of Christ. Followers of Christ, we're going to give an account. Do you understand that? (laughs) That should be a big deal for us in our lives. Now, we've been learning that if you follow Jesus, your first judgment, it took place on the cross of Calvary because you looked to Jesus and you were what? Justified. Remember? He made it just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd always obeyed. When I die, the Bible says there's a great white throne judgment. It will be determined if your name is in that Lamb's book of life, the book of life. If you've looked to Jesus, it is. So you don't go before that judgment. If your name's not in there, you haven't looked to Jesus, you will then face judgment. You didn't take judgment of your sins on the cross through Jesus. You're saying, no, I'm going to handle that on my own. And so you will experience forever death in hell. But for Christ followers, there is a judgment we have. The Bible calls it the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And so that's what Romans says. That's what Paul says to the church at Rome. Remember, don't forget, guys, y'all are going to stand before the Bema seat. Now, we read that in our day, and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why in the world is the Bema seat? But they would have understood. That's why I do trips like this, Journeys of Paul trip. We've got a few more spots. I'd love for you to go. But we will visit the ancient city of Corinth. And in Corinth, we will see a Bema seat, the remains of that. The Bema seat was a raised platform in the city where the city leaders would stand and they would render judgment. They would speak out about issues. Or like at the end of a a, a victory, when there's been a battle, the the soldiers would come by and parade and they they would receive treasures, trophies, and prizes. And the Bible says that we, as Christ followers, are accountable to stand before Jesus for everything we've done in our service to him. We're not dealing with unconfessed sin, but we're dealing with what we've done good for him. We're dealing with you know, our, what, how, we, how we used our, our time, how we used our talent, how we used our treasure. Did we understand that we, that we belong to him? And so in light of that, Paul then finishes this chapter. And I'm not going to read all of it to you, but I want you to understand it. He begins by saying, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. And instead, make up your mind not to be a stumbling block. In verse 14, he says, I'm convinced, I'm fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, nothing's unclean in itself. But if anything, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. So if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Don't distress them. Don't stir the pot. Don't cause pain. In verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. In verse 19, he says, Therefore let us make every effort to to what leads to peace and mutual edification. Don't destroy, destroy the work of God for food for these disputable issues. I love verse 22. He says, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. 
Here's the reality. When we stand in judgment of others, we forget our need for grace and we stand in God's place before them. And that's a dangerous place to be. Now let me help you out as we land the plane. So you can buckle your seat belts, put your seat backs in the upright position. We get around that in church because we say, I'm just keeping them accountable. Is it? Is that what he's talking about? Accountability it means I'm standing between you and a really bad decision or consequence. So accountability would mean, look at my friend Manuel. I've known him the whole time I've been here. We went on a mission trip together in my first few days. And accountability would be me saying to Manuel, hey, I see this going on in your life. If you keep going in this path, you're going to run off the road. I don't want you to run off the road. I don't want you to be mad at me, but, but I love you more than your opinion of me. And so I'm going to keep you accountable as a friend in Christ. That's accountability. Judgment is different. Judgment saying, I'm standing between you and God. In fact, it's saying to God, hey, I got this. I'll take care of Manuel, God. You're off the hook. The difference between judgment and accountability is your posture, the position you take. Is it out of love and motivation and relationship? So he's saying avoid judging because when we judge, we, we tend to judge the wrong things. Let me tell you about that. Because we're looking at the specks in other people's eyes while we're ignoring the logs in our own. All you got to do is look on Christian Facebook for that. And, and see how so many of us are quick to speak out about things we're against that are maybe the big issues that we should be against. But we're not dealing with that stuff that everybody else around us sees in our own life. We tend to judge the wrong people, and we tend to judge at the wrong time. I, I want to tell you something today. You will never be judged on the, you'll never be judged on the beliefs and the opinions of others, but you will be judged on how you related to those people that differ with you. You're not the judge of another person. They don't belong to you because we all belong to Christ. But you should be an example of Christ-likeness. So I, I want to give you some, just some practical help before I pray with you. Um, and so remember what we're dealing with. We're dealing with whether this is theological differences or matters of preferences or definitions of sinfulness. See, we could have spent our whole time on issues like that. Is it a sin to go to a movie? Is it a sin to go to a certain rating of movie? Should a Christian drink? Should a Christian not drink? Can, can we dance? Go back to that one, Pastor. See, you can put all of those through this filter. What does Paul say? Number one, he says, choose not to be a stumbling block. You've just got to decide, Christ follower, if what I'm doing or how I, I feel and believe about an issue is causing more harm than it is at help, hello, it's probably not worth it. Number two, know what you believe, though. He, he said in this passage, I expect you to have convictions, Man, some of those issues I've mentioned, I know what I believe on those issues. We don't talk about them every time we gather. They may not be pivotal issues in how we do church, but I, I could say to you, hey, this is what I believe the Bible says on these issues. You should know where you stand on these convictions. It's okay to have convictions. You should. In fact, here's a help to you. I, I want you to just imagine this word, think. Everybody say, think. 
Use that word think, and this will help guide you. And just as a bonus, this will save you a lot of embarrassment on social media. If you just start living by this principle that someone came up with. Number one, is it true? Is it true? It's what I want to do consistent with God's word. Number two, is it helpful? Does this help point people to Jesus? Does it help further the kingdom of God? Number three, is it inspiring? Is it going to motivate others to, to be more like Christ? Number four, is it necessary? Do I really need to do this? Not do I want to do this. Not is it okay. Not do I have the freedom to do it. Do I need to do this? Number five, is it kind? Because guys, I'm just going to tell you right now. We don't have the liberty to be unkind. So go back to my list. You're choosing not to be a stumbling block. You're knowing what you believe. You're keeping Christ central. That's what he said. Stay in the center. Don't get out on the margins focusing on things you shouldn't be. And then I love number four. Don't say everything you think. Yeah, I said that. You don't have to say everything you think. Everybody doesn't want to know your opinion about everything. Help yourself. Keep your mouth shut and then live peaceably. Hey, I could sum all of this up by saying this. The gospel compels me to sacrifice me for the glory of God. All right? The big picture, the mission, the kingdom of God, His glory is bigger than how I feel about any other issue. When I think about that, what it means is the preeminence of Jesus is more important than the preferences of Paul. Put your name in there. The preeminence of Jesus is more important than the preferences of you. All right. Before I pray, is there any biblical example of this? Yeah. It's on the next page. <laughs> In Romans 15, Paul says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ, what? Did not please himself. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians 2. He says, If you're going to cop an attitude, have this attitude, the attitude of Christ, who though he was God took on the very form of a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death. So that, by the way, something Paul also says in Romans 14, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus the Christ is Lord. Church, this is a big deal. Let's get it right. Would you bow your heads with me? So what do you do in a message like this? Um, three things. Some of us need to ask forgiveness. You need to repent and you need to ask forgiveness. You I, 
the neat thing about this stage in my ministry, <laughs> I'm not preaching this message at anybody, maybe except for myself. Um, I'm not addressing any specific concerns in our church. We're just going through expositorily a passage of Scripture. But I recognize that, that probably some of us have heard this, and we're not right. Maybe we're where God wants us to be, but how we left where we were is not how it should have been. And you just need to do some business, maybe with a person, maybe with God. All right? Um, there's others of us here that just need to forgive. We've been hurt in a relationship. And we've allowed that to create a seed of bitterness in our life that's keeping us from really responding to Jesus. And that's not okay. Jesus is not being magnified in our life when we're focused on something that's hurt us in the past. But I do want to mention that third group of you. Maybe you're here and you've never trusted Christ. And part of the reason was you thought, man, there's a bunch of hypocrites in church. You're right. And we blow it every day. But God is a God of grace. And, and you need that same grace we do. So if you've never recognized that your sin separates you from God and one day will be judged, either on the cross of Calvary or either at that final judgment, if, if you've never you've never reconciled that, then I want to invite you to trust Jesus today. Here's what I know. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you can be saved right now. What are you saved from? The punishment of your sin. And you're saved to a forever relationship with God. So maybe you would pray a prayer just like this, you and him. You just say, Jesus, I need you. Just tell him, I need you. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I believe you died for me. You're alive today. So here I am. I'm going to trust you today, but for the rest of my life. I just say thank you, Jesus. As I close this time of prayer, would you stand together with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for a scripture like this that challenges us. Lord, this is, in my life, not as much an amen message as an oh my message. Kind of hurts to work through some of this. And Lord, I just pray that you use this as we've asked to build your church and advance your kingdom. Lord, let us not miss this moment because our desire is to be one who gives you praise and glory in our life. Our desire is to magnify you. So hear our hearts cry, even now, in the name of Jesus. Amen.